Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We hope that you are safe. We hope that yours are safe. We hope that everyone is doing as well as they can be in Baltimore town. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 122 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like beleaguered outfielder Josh Hamilton, is aware of its limitations. You know, I've said some dumb things, um, and I'll continue to say dumb things at times. That warning feels particularly relevant this evening, folks. Because while your humble hosts frequently say dumb things about the baseball team that plays in Baltimore, tonight there are some things that need to be said about the Baltimore where that baseball team plays. Trouble is, it's very hard to know what the right thing to say about it is. The events of the last week or so in Birdland are deeply upsetting, confusing, and complex. Still, it seems to us here at Hootenanny Studios tonight that we have to say something. Because, if nothing else, it seems undeniable that circumstances like the ones which led to this week's events arise when we're too afraid to talk about things that are deeply upsetting, confusing, and complex. Mm-hmm. We should also note that a lot of people have said wonderful things in response to the situation, <laughs> including our own Buck Showalter, who said, and I quote, It's a pet peeve of mine when somebody says, well, I know what they're feeling. You've never been black, okay? So just slow down a little bit, end quote. Adam Jones spoke eloquently about his empathy for the disaffected youth of Baltimore. You know, I know there's been a lot of, a lot of damage in the city, but there's also been a lot of good. There's been a lot of good protesting. There's been a lot of people standing up um, for the rights that they, that they have based on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And the youth are hurting. Now, I don't think they need more antagonizing. I think they just, they need, they need a shoulder to cry on. And, you know, I'd say to the youth, your, your, your frustration is, is warranted. The actions I don't think are, are acceptable, but if you, if you come from where they come from, you understand. This, this is their cry. And as, uh, obviously this isn't a cry that is acceptable. But this is their cry, and therefore we have to understand it. And like I said, they need hugs. They need love. They need support. And these kids have seen the pain in their parents' eyes, the pains in their grandparents' eyes over decades. And you know, this, is their, this is their way of, uh, of speaking on behalf of their parents and behalf of their grandparents, who the people have been hurt. And our president, Barack Obama, wondered why we can't view the rioters as our own, even as we condemn their violent actions. But if we really want to solve the problem, if our society really wanted to solve the problem, uh, we could. It's just it would require everybody saying this is important, this is significant. And that we don't just pay attention to these communities when a CVS burns. And we don't just pay attention when uh, a young man gets shot or has his spine snapped. But we're paying attention all the time because we consider those kids our kids and we think they're important and they shouldn't be living in poverty and violence. Each of these men, and many, many other folks over the last few days, has offered eloquence in a time of great moral haze. 
And yet, one could argue that doing so is, in some ways, something we ought to expect of public figures of their stature and presence in our American community. I found myself experiencing many emotions as I listened to and read each of their comments. But one of those emotions was relief. Relief that these men who I admire so deeply didn't join the chorus of angry, hostile commenters on television and social media, categorically dismissing the riots as the behavior of simple-minded thugs. To be sure, not everyone who took to the streets of Baltimore this week in protest of Freddie Gray's death did so with good intentions and a considered mindfulness of the complexity of the moment. But the swiftness with which so many of us turned down our eyebrows in harsh judgment of the misguided actions of a subset of the protesters, our willful ignorance of the thousands of Baltimoreans who organized peaceful resistance gatherings or who braved the desecrated streets the morning after the riots to clean up their city, our seeming knee-jerk rejection of empathy for the suffering population of a once prosperous city that has been ravaged by economic ruin. There's something chilling about that. The revelation that our community leaders possess empathy shouldn't prompt relief. It shouldn't be a surprise. It's what we should expect. Tonight, we'll try to get our heads around the role of our beloved Orioles in fostering that sense of empathy by way of a conversation with Travis Waldron, who writes on sports and politics for Think Progress. Our show this evening will not be, as many of you have often described it, a baseball show with political overtones, but rather a political show with baseball overtones. <laughs> we'll try to get some clarity around these questions of what baseball can be for us, and maybe even what we can be for each other. But first, ladies and gentlemen, as always, a few words from my esteemed colleague, Alan Smith. Well, how interesting, Sam that episode 122 falls on this historic day because there were exactly 122 human beings who were able to watch the Orioles game today live at Camden Yards, including members of both teams, for the Orioles' 8-2 thrashing of the White Sox. This strange scene, the first game in Major League Baseball history to have had zero fans in attendance, was fascinating to observe. You could hear all the infield chatter. You could hear sirens and fans chanting from outside the stadium, and you could actively hear Gary Thorne getting sillier by the second. But the game, for all its eccentricities, felt to me like a symbolic first step in the rebuilding of Baltimore. Not, it should be noted, as a return to normalcy. It seems pretty clear that the status quo in Baltimore is not a place we should be looking to return to, but instead, like an unprecedented but nonetheless pleasant symbol of people getting up, doing their jobs, and then taking time to reflect on what it all meant. But perhaps I felt this way because the Orioles won. Baltimoreans, I cannot think of any better context to give you than this. Here on episode 122, sports did its job today. What a glorious, amazing thing. It did its job by bringing us together, distracting us for a moment, and providing a baseline of a community. In short, it lived up to its own lofty billing of being social fabric. So, I will invoke the name of sport, and I'd like to address the good people listening to this show who might not agree with Sam and I politically, but who put up with our silly rantings because we care about the same set of 25 men playing a game. And I will say this to you today, please don't leave. Um, don't turn this off. Don't unfollow us at BeMorons on Twitter. Instead, 
take from me the best piece of advice I've ever been given by WNYC radio host Brian Lair, who told me, always listen hardest when you disagree. I will say, I don't think I'm always right about the space of politics and equal justice. But I do come to you this evening and in life with my feet squarely in two worlds. One, the world of hashtag Black Lives Matter activism, of progressive organizing, of what some people are calling the, quote, blame anyone but ourselves left. And the other, the world of mostly white, mostly conservative Central Virginia, of baseball, of tradition, and of what some people are calling, quote, a racist and ignorant right. So perhaps you can trust me when I say that I'm going to do my best and always do my best to walk this line with this week's events and in life, and that I've heard and absorbed both sides of this particular discussion as someone who is getting heat from both worlds. Perhaps you can't trust me. Maybe you are already on my side, or maybe you already stopped listening when it became clear that Sam and I were going to wax lyrical instead of talking about Ubaldo Jimenez's rediscovering form or what the hell is going on with our platinum glove third baseman. But just in case you are still listening, here's my take. Everyone is scared. I know lots of black folks who are scared of police because they think they're going to get shot even if they're doing absolutely nothing at all wrong. I know a lot of white folks who want to be sympathetic, but seeing TV images or experiencing the actual reality of their neighborhoods burning makes them scared, it makes them angry, and it makes them sad. But here is something I hope we can all be on the same team over. There is a serious problem in this country right now, and it is racial in its nature. We cannot be colorblind to the fact that black folks have a lived experience where they have no choice but to protest and at times even protest violently. You don't have to agree with that statement, but you have to acknowledge that's their experience. You could maybe even write it off if it happened only in Florida, or only in Ferguson, or only in Brooklyn. But the fact is, there is a movement of people in this country, it's all over the place, and with each subsequent anecdote, it gets harder and harder to ignore a trend. So you can slice this one of two ways. Either... You believe that there is something about black people that makes them more likely to turn violent or more likely to be poor, or you are forced to accept that there is a systematically repressive system in place that privileges one color over another. Are our systems overtly, intentionally racist, like, say, the days of Jim Crow? I don't think so. But the outcomes, y'all, the way it breaks down in the actual field of play, the outcomes are still racist even if no one in the system wants it to be that way. I think that if you look at the advanced metrics, and Lord knows I love advanced metrics, at the numbers behind these stories, it's borne out. According to a John Hopkins study, a black man growing up in Baltimore, age 15 to 19, is exposed to considerably higher rates of mental health issues, substance abuse, sexual risk-taking, sexual violence, and teen pregnancy than the same teen living in Shanghai, New Delhi, and Johannesburg. Yeah, Shanghai, New Delhi, and Johannesburg. Neighborhoods in Baltimore are basically the equivalent of the poorest parts of Nigeria. You want another good advanced metric? African Americans represent 12% of the total population of drug users, but 38% of those arrested for drug offenses, and almost 60% of those in state prison for drug offenses. That's 
not mathematically possible unless you can see that this is a broken system. It's not hard to see how the metrics here are telling us a story that would put Moneyball to shame. Now, the folks rioting in Baltimore this week might not know those numbers. They might not have the advanced scouting reports on the trends of incarceration or economic opportunity, but they know that something feels not right. They know that they don't have jobs. They don't have access to opportunity. They know that the world feels stacked against them at every turn. And that's the lived experience that I'm trying to evoke here. They know of anecdotes and stories where the people who are supposed to be protecting them are instead haranguing, hurting, and killing them. Imagine that reality in your lives. How many incidents like that would you need to hear before you started to get scared of cops? I think it's one. Okay, uh, what do we do about this? Baltimore has a blacker police force than Ferguson. The mayor is a black woman. The things that we lefties traditionally point to as policy solutions in Ferguson are not clearly in play here on the fields of Baltimore. For step one, then, just join Sam in looking for empathy, for places to value the experience of people with little to nothing, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of hope and in terms of a clear pathway to success. That is, I think, the only cure here. Empathy. So if you're still listening, thank you. Um, tell me what I'm getting wrong. Tell me why personal responsibility matters more and my systemic issues bullshit matters less. Tell me why people who worked hard, who played by the rules matter, and why it's a travesty that their businesses and their cars and their property were destroyed. I'll probably agree with you. But don't write it off. Because everyone on both sides of this very real problem nationwide in 2015 are going into their bunkers, preaching to their own choirs, and demonizing the other side. Because I'm watching it unfold over Twitter and in the press and amongst my friends and it's so crazy that it's making me feel bipolar. So if sports can do anything here, maybe it's this. Maybe sports can open up lines of communication between us, people with nothing in common except for carbon molecules and the fact that we all bleed orange and black. Well, folks, as we suggested earlier, we're about to get on the line with Travis Waldron, who is a reporter and blogger for thinkprogress.org at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. We were pretty struck by a piece that Travis wrote earlier this week in which he discussed the remarkably enlightened view of Oriole's chief operating officer, John Angelos, with regard to the protests in Baltimore. And Travis joins us now on the line here at Hootenanny Studios. Travis Waldron, thank you so much for joining us on Baltimoreans tonight. Thank you. So you are a sports journalist at Think Progress, and it's hard to imagine a situation that plucks at the progressive sports fans' heartstrings more than the one currently unfolding in Baltimore. And you wrote recently about the statement of support for the protests from Orioles' chief operating officer, John Angelos. Can you tell us what he said and why you found it so noteworthy? Yeah, so John Angelos basically, it was it was kind of a long Twitter rant. The gist of it was that there are deeper causes to these protests than simply the death of Freddie Gray. And that the story is, you know, a, a long history of kind of ignoring urban centers. And, and the part that I find found moving about that was... 
kind of the last part of his statement where where he said the innocent working families of all backgrounds whose lives and dreams have been cut short by excessive violence, surveillance, and other abuses of the Bill of Rights by government pay the true price, an ultimate price, and one that far exceeds the importance of any kid's game played tonight or ever at Camden Yards. I think that resonated with me because there were so many uh, stories about baseball fans who maybe felt inconvenienced by the protests uh, when they got locked in the stadium on Saturday night. Sure. And I think it's it's important, I think, to note that there are these deeper causes and there are uh, reasons why people feel the need to protest and why they feel the need to, uh, if you want to describe it in this way, riot. And I think John Angelos showed kind of an understanding of, of those deeper reasons and of the fact that there are you know, these are not one-off events. These are not, you know, it's not just Freddie Gray. It's kind of deeper frustrations and long-running frustrations in communities that have been ignored. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So one of the things that uh, seems like it's sort of emergent in your conclusion to the piece you wrote is this idea that that kind of sentiment coming from the executive suite of a professional sports team is kind of like a lightning bolt um, <laughs> an unprecedented lightning bolt in some ways. Because <laughs> yeah, know, we're, yeah, we're pretty aware at this point of the ugliness that sports team owners are capable of. Can you think of any other examples similar to John Angelos? Do you think this might be the beginning of a larger trend? What's what's special about this? What 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 hits really hard here is if you cover kind of you know the way these sports teams interact with their communities they always talk about how they're a part of the community when they want something yeah uh, mm. whether, whether it's a stadium subsidy or whatever it is they they talk about you know we're a part of the community we're important to this community when when it's beneficial to them uh what i think is striking about john angelos's comments is that it, i would assume that as the executive of a major league baseball team, he has some interest in law and order and peace and order. Uh, and, and they're not being protests around his ballpark. And for him to kind of express this deeper understanding and deeper connection with the community, uh, when it's not necessarily self beneficial is really, I think important. I think the, vast majority of the sympathy that's going to come from the sports world with regard to these types of protests and, and this movement in particular is going to be from players yeah. uh, because yeah. they're the ones who identify both racially, economically, and in all kinds of different ways. I, I don't think you're going to see a rash of owners all of a sudden <laughs> understanding what people in poor communities are going through. <laughs> You don't think uh, the Steinbrenner brothers are going to uh, release a statement of support? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I don't expect the Steinbrenners to start understanding uh, maybe some of the negative effects of gentrification in New York City. No. <laughs> <laughs> Lightning bolts are one thing. Cold days in hell, quite another. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I mean, I I thought that it was so sort of the statements from. Um, Angelos were so spectacular for the exact reasons that you're saying. And I thought that I wonder w whether you think that the Orioles are doing a good job with 
their actions as well as that rhetoric because it it did surprise me that that came from the Orioles front office and it sort of overjoyed me and but I also wonder like or is it a little bit of um, window dressing if you separate the franchise from the players I know Adam Jones does a lot of charity work in Baltimore right Mm -hmm. Uh, look I I know uh, from my perspective I can guarantee you that the that the Baltimore Orioles could be doing better for sure. And yeah. they could be doing more for, um, sure. for whatever it is they're doing. Um, you know, I, I, I know Camden Yards is publicly financed. Yeah. And the fact that Camden Yards is publicly financed means that uh, based on how these things usually work, that it probably took away resources that could have been devoted to West Baltimore yeah, and could have been devoted to poorer communities, uh, to schools, to whatever. You know, I mean, I saw pictures this week during the protest that when people were blaming protesters for burning down buildings and things like that of buildings that have been vacant with no windows for 20 years. Yeah. You know, this is, there's a larger story here. Um, I would hope that the Orioles would be more cognizant of that now. You know, it's one thing for John Angelos to issue a, a long Twitter statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but kind of like you said, what are you going to do? Yeah. How are you going to back that up? Uh, but also, a point that I've made to some people this week is this is all very, very much bigger than sports. To put the onus on the Orioles to do that. <laughs> it seems a little unfair. Would, it would disregard the role that all of us have in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about then for a moment, like kind of the, the, the thrust of this podcast, if there is one, and I'm not always sure that there is, is like what is the role of sports in this space and what is the role of sports in a social justice moment? Um, usually we feel like sports are not living up to that promise, um, but in some ways it does feel like the Orioles have a, uh, especially with the game played today in the empty stadium and this sort of like strange um, trying to keep going and whilst also acknowledging that this is not necessarily business as usual moment, um, that the Orioles have a a, a chance to be an interesting symbol, if maybe like monetarily empty, interesting symbolic gesture. I wonder like, what do you think that the role of sports can be beyond that? Uh, And and should there be one? And like, what, is that enough? Is that good? Right. So, First, of course, sports are falling short in their role in this because we're falling short. Like uh-huh. everyone talks about, and and baseball is guilty of this. In you know, in the racial context, they 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 love to talk about how they're the sport of Jackie Robinson, uh, and that they were a leader on you know racial integration, and to an extent, they were. That's certainly true. But people love to look at sports sometimes and say that sports are a leader in social change. I I think the majority of the time sports are a much better reflection of us Mm -hmm. than they are a leader of us. Yep. I think the role for sports is to be maybe a better reflection. You know, I I go back to the incidents that aren't that dissimilar from this, the Eric Garner case in, in Staten Island or Tamir Rice in Cleveland where uh, athletes in the NFL and, and the NBA from Andrew Hawkins from the Cleveland Browns to LeBron James and Derrick Rose wore I Can't Breathe t-shirts or Justice for Tamir Rice t-shirts. 
you know, those are places where sports can use the platform they have to bring awareness to things that people might not be thinking of or might not be thinking of in that context, that it's, it's not just an escape that these guys uh, on our teams that we go cheer for every day are regular human beings too. Yeah. And that this affects them. Adam Jones, who clearly feels a deep connection to this community and has said that as an African-American feels a deep connection to this issue. Those are the things where sports, I think, can have a role. You know, in an ideal world, I would love for teams like the Orioles to have a much deeper connection to their community, to be active members of their community, like I said before, when it doesn't necessarily just benefit them. I don't know that we're ever going to get there on that front. I really like this idea that you're you're bringing up, though, the idea of sports having the possibility of being a brighter reflection of who we could be. Earlier in this evening's podcast, one of the things I was talking about was the sense of surprise that I felt when I heard Adam Jones and Buck Showalter expressing so much empathy and support for the protesters and indeed the rioters um, in Baltimore, because I'm so used to the feeling of disappointment from right. people I ad- otherwise admire when they weighed in on a political issue um, showing the contents of their heart and discovering like, oh, no, they actually are more cynical than I am or they right. don't they don't believe that things could be better. Whereas in this case, they spoke about the situation with more eloquence than I could ever possibly muster. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that in a situation where they have been tremendously inconvenienced and had their entire lives disrupted way more than I have. Uh, these guys are doing that while they're also playing an incredibly visible professional sport. I mean, it's really remarkable. Right. Well, so I think to the brighter reflection point and and to return not to just this incident, but to the larger movement that we're talking about, I think sports in a way gives voice to people that don't have much of a voice in our society. So if you look at the NBA, LeBron James is the most powerful player in the NBA. LeBron James is a black man. We don't we don't have a lot of, you know, strong black men out here that we're giving voices to all over the place. It's easy for us to look at LeBron James or Dwayne Wade, who, you know, after Trayvon Martin's death was on the cover of, I think, Ebony Magazine wearing a hoodie with his sons. It's easy for us to look at them and see them as different because they're famous and they're rich and they've made it. But they still go through a lot of the same things that the average black man in in inner cities goes through tory hunter who in the past uh, had cops come to his door and think that he would when he answered the door think that he was maybe breaking in or you see with athletes black athletes who've reported being cops being suspicious of them when they get pulled over in fancy cars you know it's a way of showing us that there still is a very big gap racially in the united states and that we have to work to address that and that that's a thing that affects a lot of people even those that are that we kind of see on tv every day and see and think they've made it that it still affects them and that they still feel it well and something i have to say what that was thrilling to me about hearing buck showalter express those sentiments and also in the orioles television broadcast today hearing jim palmer who has lived in baltimore for 50 years express sympathy for 
the uh, protesters is that I know Jim Palmer and Buck Showalter, I believe, to be fairly politically conservative dudes. Um, right. Showalter has, in a profile uh, and in a Sports on Earth piece last year, uh, expressed a lot of admiration for George W. Bush's presidency. Mm-hmm. And Jim Palmer has talked about, you know, being invited on the Koch brothers' yacht numerous times. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, those are ordinarily the kind of things that the knee-jerk progressive part of me wants to um, use as a reason to doubt the idea that there is, like, real empathy in these guys. And indeed, that makes me want to avoid engaging with them in any way other than just as baseball managers slash commentators. Right. Um, and so a moment like this where that barrier gets shattered completely is very powerful for even for someone jaded like me. <laughs> right but these like that's the thing is that this isn't a political question yeah like this shouldn't be a political question it's the idea that you should be safe in police custody is not a liberal value no right like it is that's not a liberal versus conservative thing i think i saw on twitter today that bill o'reilly basically said that exact thing last night like I, I don't agree with Bill O'Reilly much. No? <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine. I don't condone the violence or the riots, but there's a difference between condoning them and understanding them, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you understand that the frustration of you can't even be safe with the people who are supposed to be keeping your community safe, that's a problem. And I would I would like to think that even if my politics and Buck Showalter's politics are different, or if my politics and Jim Palmer's politics are different, that that's not really a political question. Yeah, and what I think is really interesting about that is that it is and and was becoming politicized and things were beginning to break down along politicized lines until, I think, people who have the potential to cross those lines who were considered more conservative or maybe viewed as that particular messenger um, – stood up and said something. And I think it's particularly interesting for baseball, which has a older, whiter, um, and more middle-class viewership than the other major sports in this country, maybe not hockey, um, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that those, that, that, that messenger, like maybe even Buck Showalter and Jim Palmer are better messengers in that case or more useful messengers in that case than Adam Jones. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, that's kind of one of the interesting uh, sub-aspects of of this is how baseball is interacting. You know, it's one thing in the NBA and the NFL, I think especially with the NBA where your stars are so disproportionately African-American. Baseball itself, uh, demographically, is probably as uh, accurate a representation of American demographics as there is in terms of white players, black players, Latino players, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, um, and, and, and Asian players increasingly. Right. So it's, you know, it, it will be interesting, I think, to see how baseball continues to react to this. It's, you know, I think this movement and these protests aren't going away. Nope. They're gonna, if, if we've learned anything over the last probably eight months, it's that they're going to continue. And that they um, are, like you've been saying, that they are part of a larger movement. I mean, this is not A like, much larger movement. Yeah. And, um, and, that that you know our sports teams have contributed to again to go back to the public financing issue you know yeah, our, right. our, our sports teams are not innocent in the way that urban policies have been shaped over the last four or five decades 
which is you know and, part and part of uh, of our part and parcel of Sam and my's uh, long-standing plan to crowdsource six hundred million dollars to buy the Orioles and convert them into <laughs> a community nonprofit serving the city of Baltimore. But carry on. <laughs> Let me know when you do that, and I will help. <laughs> Sounds well, good. You know the, the I thing will, that I will become an Orioles fan. <laughs> we'll I'm you. already a huge fan of the way Adam Adam Jones wears stirrups. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> so I can I can I can get behind the stirrups for everyone and public ownership you know one of the things that's that's interesting about alan bringing that up tonight in particular is that um that plan is something we conceived of when we started this podcast back in 2012 and disdain for peter angelos and the angelos family by extension was as high as it's ever been as we were expecting to go into yet another uh miserable losing season and yet here we are tonight talking about how uh perhaps there's at least one member of the angelos family who is a beacon of hope (laughs) amongst sports owners so we may have to rewrite our kickstarter blurb just a little bit (laughs) yeah i i wouldn't go that far (laughs) okay all right Um, that's a good reality check now i hold you know i hold a particular i'm i'm a big proponent of let's just own all of our sports teams the way that they do in you know with german soccer yes you know that was the one the most shocking moment maybe of my writing career was when newt gingrich called for public ownership of the los angeles clippers that was crazy and i, I was like i, I think, don't i think I don't me know and what Newt Gingrich just agreed on something <laughs> i'm not really sure how to feel about that but yeah i remember that i remember that exact moment i was like oh man him the, that yeah, was, and the and the moon colony and i was like man Newt's moon making con- a lot of sense moon colonies. yeah you really you really Mostly start to question Newt Gingrich. Most- <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, i think you know that's one thing that to to go back to the larger conversation is is a a big part of this is I, I keep harping on this I feel like but you know if you're gonna tout your 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 place in the community then have a place in the community yeah you know not just not just when you need a stadium not just when it's good for PR you know get out there and help yeah yeah. And and a lot of teams do, and I'll give them credit. A lot of teams do things uh, with support for youth baseball leagues and things like that. But there's so much more. There's so much more. Yeah. Although and, I am reminded of the 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 point that you were making earlier about how professional sports teams are bad at this in the community because we as Americans are are as, as exactly. a nation are bad at this in our communities. And I had a, a light thought when you brought that up that like it's not enough that we ask the Orioles to contend in the American League East with a pitching staff that most advanced <laughs> sabermetricians agree is terrible. <laughs> uh, we also want them to you know solve the socioeconomic issues that plague uh, most of inner city America. (laughs) Except that, you know, I I think it's fine that we do because we invest so much of our blood, sweat and tears and tax dollars in some amount of urban identity that they're supposed to carry forward. So why shouldn't they give some of that back to us more than just in kind, but like in, in greater measure than what we maybe expect? I agree with you. I, I think that's, you know, I think if we're giving them public tax dollars, then in a way they are sort of a public trust and they have a responsibility. As I said before, they should do more. There, there's more that can be done. And the simple fact that sports teams 
are something that unite communities in a way that maybe nothing else does makes them uniquely powerful in our communities. At the same time, though, yielding yielding so much power and so much responsibility to them, I think it absolves us a little bit. It it says that if sports handle this right, we'll all handle it right. If the NFL just does a little bit better on domestic violence, then everything will be okay. And if baseball does a little bit better on responding to you know these protests and police violence, then we'll all be okay. But it, that's not the case. I I think you know th- fixing these problems, fixing the deep seated problems that precede all of this. Uh, requires action from everyone. It requires sports to do better, but it requires all of us to do better. And it requires political elites to do better. And it all of us to care a little bit. Well, I, I cannot possibly think of a better note to end this conversation on than that. Um, Travis, thank you very much for joining us tonight and for for sharing your insights on this issue. And people can find your work at Think Progress or on Twitter where you tweet at Travis underscore Waldron. Both of those things will be linked at bemorons.com. And uh, keep fighting the good fight out there, man. We really appreciate your, your take on all of this. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. listening to Baltimore Ons, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. And thank you for bearing with us through this uh, not-quite-average Baltimore Ons podcast. Um, There are, of course, billions of things that we have not talked about when it comes to what's happening in Baltimore right now. Everything from the role of policing to the details of any individual riot to the situations that touched off the powder keg around Freddie Gray. Um... Sam and I are not particularly well positioned to talk about those things. Uh, neither are we well positioned to talk about the historical role of riots in Baltimore. All really interesting stuff. Um, of course, you're probably saying to yourselves, you guys are also not particularly well qualified to talk about baseball. And yet, you guys are here every week. And I just wanted to say that we really appreciate that. Um, we had a conversation, a pretty intense conversation, with a lot of you guys on Twitter. Uh, when we put up some some thoughts about the fact that uh, some people on the internet were expressing outrage at the looting that was going on, but didn't seem to have any apparent outrage about the circum the mysterious and possibly homicidal circumstances surrounding Freddie Gray's death. And one of the things that a lot of you guys were quick to point out is why does it have to only be one or the other? Why can't we have outrage about the entire continuum of horribleness that this situation has stirred up? And I want to say for me personally, that was a very meaningful thing to remember that it's, it's really important to not think dualistically about issues like this. And it was just one of the many examples of why I find doing this podcast so gratifying uh, and having the conversation with all of you guys. So thank you for that. And the one thing that we can weigh in on with absolute certainty is feelings. 
So we'll be back next week with more feelings, um, probably about the fluid that was drained out of Jonathan Scope's knee, or the <laughs> fact that J.J. Hardy's arm still doesn't work, or the what the fuck is Manny Machado doing over there at third base? He seems to be taking a vacation. Um, or but does anyone remember when we had an update about Matt Wieters? Oh, God. Is, is he ever going to play for us again? He may, he may just be dead. I'm so um, sad. Anyway, all of that in, in weeks to come. Uh, we're going to head out, but first... Um, Sam has a lovely, I think, description that the New York Times posted doing some some images from the streets of Baltimore in the direct aftermath of Monday. Yes, indeed. Uh, by way of closing, I wanted to share this excerpt from an article published, as Alan said, in the New York Times. It's by Ron Nixon, and in my opinion, it does a beautiful job of capturing the really intense contradictions of the situation on the streets of Baltimore this week, the beautiful things and the ugly things and the reality in which those are are bumped right up against each other. So I'm just going to read you a little, a little bit from it. The piece is titled, Amid Violence, Factions and Messages Converge in a Weary and Unsettled Baltimore. And it goes like this. Young men, some in surgical masks, pulled cases of water from a looted convenience store while peaceful protesters from 300 Men March, a local anti-violence group, tried to persuade women and children to go back inside after ambulances slowly moved through the streets, marked by burned or abandoned cars. This is what you have from years and years of police brutality and abuse in this city, said Deontre Lucas, standing near a burning car outside her house. It's just now boiling over. Minutes later, Representative Elijah E. Cummings, a Democrat from Maryland, appeared in the middle of a spontaneous march. He was surrounded by several hundred people, walking arm in arm down West North Avenue, singing, I'm going to stay on the battlefield. They walked away from the police gathered just a few blocks away. Every few steps, more people joined the group. A man in a blue shirt locked arms with a man in a gray suit. A man rolled forward in a wheelchair. We're out here, and this is peaceful. Bishop Walter S. Thomas, pastor of the New Psalmist Baptist Church, shouted to the crowd. After a pause, they continued, singing This Little Light of Mine. Helicopters shined spotlights on the group, the thwack-thwack of their rotors competing with the music. The march ended at New Shiloh Baptist Church on North Monroe Street, where people raised their hands in a moment of silence to commemorate Freddie Gray, who died a week after his arrest. Several of the ministers, led by the Reverend Ron Owens, convened a meeting with some of the young rioters. While about 50 people sat in pews, six or seven young men went to the front of the church with the ministers, where they laid out their own mix of chaos and calm. A couple of the young men wore bandanas to hide their identity. The young men identified themselves as members of the Crips, Bloods, and Black Guerrilla family street gangs. One of the Crips members, who called himself Charles, wearing a red Chicago Bulls Derrick Rose t-shirt, said the gang members had taken to the street because, quote, there's only so far you can push people into a corner. We're frustrated, he continued, and that's why we're out here in the streets. And we will leave it there. Tell us what we got wrong at Be Morons um, on Twitter, and tune in next week where we will be back to our usual tomfoolery and uh, meaningless baseball drivel. Until then, good night and stay safe, Baltimore. Pass on the yawn, the day is gone The journey is over, the road has been long My words to you, now that all is through Tomorrow will be what you make it It 
Oh, God. 